If we're lucky in life, we have people who we can consistently identify as catalysts of inspiration or creativity. There are, of course, subtle sources in all corners of our experiences of this inspiration, but sometimes we can cross paths with people who just jumpstart our minds and our spirits. In my limited life so far, I've encountered a few people who do this for me, luckily. Uh, Some of them peers, some musicians, some people I've never even met. But often they are teachers. Today we're going to talk with two of the most inspiring people I know, Professor Ed Risden and Father Jim Nielsen. They're going to tell us about their journey pursuing their passions, even in the midst of constant discouragement and challenge, how finding a source of joy is essential to most things in life and, frankly, can solve most of the crises we're having right now, and how they fight the occasional or frequent existential crisis. My name is Nora Eckert. Stay tuned for this and more. You're listening to The Conversationalist. If you've listened to the podcast before, then you already know this, but these podcasts are a bit different from the full video conversations I have posted on YouTube and my website. The podcasts are where I select some interesting parts of the discussion, pick them apart, and supplement with some of my own research. If you want to see the full video conversation or smaller video highlights, that can all be found at theconversationalistnora.com. But let's dive into the podcast. So let's first bring you to the day of the conversation. It was a Thursday, and I think it was in November. It's been a while. Um, I just finished a one and a half hour English class with Dr. Risden. It was our capstone for English majors that semester called the Aesthetics of Film and Literature. And I trucked into class looking like a pack mule because I was holding all my gear, and we set up the conversation after class was done. So I was already primed up with almost two hours of film and literature analysis, and the blood was just pumping away, folks. After class, Dr. Risden was kind enough to make me a cup of chai tea, usually brings in a mug uh, to class with him every day, and I got set up for the arrival of Father Nielsen. As you've probably figured out by now, Dr. Risden is an English professor, and Father Nielsen teaches art, and is also a Norbertine priest. Both work at St. Norbert College in De Pere, Wisconsin. Great place, great place, highly recommend. There was a lot of informal banter for a few minutes before we really dove into the meaty stuff. I hope you're filming all this. I know, I didn't film. This is the gold right here. Right? Right? Because I can't reproduce this. This is all Of course, we had to talk about tea. Maybe. The experimental thing with mint is what I like. Peppermint. Are you a mint <laughs> fan? I'm a peppermint fan. Oh, peppermint, especially. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah, I I'm love mad about that. My yeah. sister loves mint. Does she? And you know, neither one of us knew that the other did until about a year ago. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And my sister just had to bring it up one time. But we finally made our way to the start of the formal conversation. We began by talking about their backgrounds and how Father Nielsen and Dr. Risden have gotten to the point they're at now. Both of them took a bit of a circuitous route, confronted with many difficulties along the way. I took the scenic route. <laughs> I, to here. I, 
I, I truly did. Um, I knew as a, as a young boy I wanted to pursue this, but I was discouraged uh, along the way from, from the idea of both uh, steeping myself in the visual arts here and then ever believing that I uh, would be an educator of the arts. And so it was that idea, would I be an artist or would you be an art educator? And being an art educator, does that compromise your ability as an artist? Is there going to be a primary focus? And so I, uh, I wrestled with a sense of identity for, for years and years. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was worth it. I was, I was actually a fourth grade teacher uh, oh. when I was your age. Oh. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, in inurban Chicago, it was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you learned to improvise, and, and that, that was huge. I mean, that was a good experience. But yeah, so I would say the scenic route is, yeah. is how I found myself here. Yeah, mm -hmm. equally circuitous but less scenic. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I took the route through the mud and the dead leaves and the swamp. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It took a long time. I, I always had a sense. Uh, from when I was small of what I wanted to do, but I had no notion that a person could do that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And if I ever brought it up, growing up, people say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you're supposed to say something like coal miner or steel worker, or, you know, maybe, maybe if you're really bold, police officer. Mm -hmm. And I think that if, if they think you're really smart, maybe you could say lawyer, and not everybody will say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but I, I just, I knew I loved uh, literature. But there, nobody had any notion that someone could do something like that. Uh, so yeah, I went about it in a very uh, desultory way, hopping from this to that, and not having a good sense of where to go. And uh, I was actually working out of undergraduate school, working in a laboratory, uh, working with all my lab mates. And I used to quote poetry to them as we would do our experiments. So biology? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a yeah, it was a, yeah. It was a biology lab. And the, uh, the person working next to me at the lab table one day got angry with me and said, don't you know you're not supposed to be here? You were, you were supposed to be an English major. You're supposed yeah. to be teaching people about literature. Get out! <laughs> <laughs> and she was right. Because both of their paths were rocky at times or consistently, I wondered how Dr. Risden and Father Nielsen motivated themselves to keep pursuing their passions. Father Nielsen claims that his sense of community that he got in graduate school and with the artists that he collaborated with really fueled him. Finding a community of, of people who also were steeped in the arts was very important to me. And so uh, in graduate school, uh, we had studios that were next to each other here. And then I felt like, these are my people. You know, where have you been all my life? They were all living the same things that I was loving. Yeah. That's such a refreshing experience to find yourself in the company of people who appreciate and enjoy the same things you do, especially in the midst of frustrations. These frustrations can be especially rampant, I think, in the humanities, and particularly in the editing process. So this is a problem for both artists, authors, anyone really involved in that field is the amorphous nature of editing, because you don't really have a set endpoint. You're not quite sure when to just like put the pen down, put the paintbrush down, put the computer mouse down. So I asked these two professors how they edit their work and how they deal with the frustrations of the editing process. First, Dr. Risden. You, you reach intermediate points that make sense to you. Um, a project can take the, the books I've done. I, I, I've written a book in three months. 
I've written a book over 20 years. Uh, yeah. So it comes to fruition whenever it does. Father Nielsen weighs in on how accidents can be a really essential part of the editing process. I've learned to edit my work. Um, I, I would say I've had a, uh, a consistent aesthetic, uh, but I think I've, I've learned some, some tricks, and I, I think I've developed um, a, maybe a style or a taste uh, that uh, works more often than it doesn't. There's been some failure with ex experimenting with um, with certain media, media that, mm -hmm. uh, but but I enjoy that. I mean that that that's actually part of the chemistry of, of creating something here is you know that that, that wonderful you know mistake or experiments you know sort of um, moving in a different direction. I, no, I, I don't mind that at all. Um, happy accident, right? Felix Kupa. Mm -hmm. um, this is what we like. Dr. Risden piped in with one of my favorite things that he says in class to us. My phrase for that is let the work become what it wants to become. Sure, sure, sure. Even though they seem so consistently inspired, I wondered if there were ever periods in Dr. Risden or Father Nielsen's lives where they felt like they had a shortage of ideas or were just burnt out or didn't have the energy or the liveliness to do their work with passion. Do you find that you're consistently inspired or do you enter these like droughts where you, you just can't, you don't have ideas percolating or you, I mean that's, that's pretty, that's pretty baseline, but I mean you, you're not, you don't have an idea of like a project you want to work on or how do you deal with that? Uh -huh. I have a million things that I want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no shortage. Uh, th there are other things that I'm obligated to do that inhibit that, that possibility, and uh, that becomes frustrating. But there is no shortage of, uh, of things that I'd like to explore, investigate, uh, begin to do, uh, pick up and you know, start uh, experimenting, or just find myself in the presence of the materials uh, and with, with nothing but just to absorb what, whatever is going on with that. But finding it's time. So much of, of studio work, as I'm sure it is with writing here, is time dependent. I mean, I can't be looking at the clock, and I can't be. If I'm thinking that I have an appointment in an hour, that will inhibit the process. Although they are both consistently inspired, both Father Nielsen and Dr. Risden express that there are ideal circumstances where you can explore that inspiration. Yeah, the environment that you poor students yeah. are in all the time oh, doesn't foster no. your creativity. It, it, yeah. it puts lock after lock on your time, yeah. and strain after strain on your psyche, and that's not what you need. Yeah, that's completely true. I mean, any student, college student, high school student, even middle school can probably attest to this. You don't really have time to leisurely explore this sense of inspiration, but I feel like rarely in life do you have that luxury. So perhaps inspiration should be something more, more deliberate and mechanical in a way, but I don't know if it can be inspiration if it is mechanical, maybe just intentional. Um, so I was watching a video the other day, and I'll have that link below, and in the video someone said, inspiration is for amateurs. They were claiming that hard work catalyzes motivation, which catalyzes inspiration. And in our society, we often view inspiration as the mother of hard work or ideas. Like you need to, you need to be really inspired to have the motivation to go do something. Where in fact, it might be the other way around. That hard work 
is the mother of inspiration. The more diligently you work, the more inspired you are. So it's something interesting to consider. I think what Father Nielsen and Dr. Wiston are saying is so true that when you have that time to let those ideas percolate and to really explore them, you are going to get results faster and you are going to have the opportunity to allow those ideas to come to fruition. However, when that's not particularly reasonable with your schedule, and I think it's probably the case with most people, perhaps inspiration needs to be supplemented with hard work or inspiration has to be second to hard work. Dr. Riston brings up a point kind of similar to this and how he talks about being able to turn off and on creativity like a spigot, sort of like that sense of deliberate motivation and inspiration that I was just talking about. But I'd echo exactly what Father Jim said about uh, I, I have no shortage of ideas. In my 20s, I had vague notions and no strong sense yet of where to go with them. But by the time I, I hit about 30s, I remember reading um, Stephen Crane's letters. Remember Stephen Crane? Mm, yeah, the American yeah. uh, fiction writer and actually better poet too than uh, most people realize. Uh, Red Lands of Courage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he was writing in a, a letter that he had just got to the point as a writer where he could turn the creativity on or off like a spigot. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be the place to get to? Where if there's some the, the time constraint you know you have to deal with, you can't do it at that time. But when you're ready, you turn it on and it flows. And you know what? It took me till I got my 30s before that started to happen. Okay. Yeah, but now there's no shortage of things. I could fill a dozen lifetimes with work and still have What do you ask to people who are some of the largest sources of inspiration in your own life? Well, certainly not what inspires them. That's too basic a question. I would never. So where do you draw that inspiration from? Is it just from everything? Is it hard to like even put a name on it or is it from specific sources, do you think? It might have been specific sources when I was younger. Mm -hmm. I mean, there would be reliable places to be inspired that sort of business museum. An obvious choice here, uh, but as you get older, you begin to recognize, you know, that that uh, beauty is speaking to you um, constantly, continually, wherever you might be. And um, all right, um, at St. Over College, I mean, it's this is an epicenter of inspiration in so many ways yeah. uh, on any given moment, any given day, that, that sort of business here. And so the snobbery of the feeling, I could, I could only work if I were in Paris or New York. <laughs> I, I, when I was 20, I thought that's what you had to do, right? You know, I'm never going to see this. I'm working in New York or in Paris. Mm -hmm. Also not an artist here. And then Sleepy Little De Pierre, I mean, this, this, this really animated uh, my creativity. This point resonated with me so much. When I studied abroad, I thought I would be impossibly inspired by London, and much more inspired than I was in my hometown or at college. And I found that the surroundings of the new city were certainly very stimulating, but I was not any more inspired there than I was in any other place. I think you make a choice to be open to inspiration. It's a mindset. Most of the time, for me, that comes from people, and I guess there are a lot of those everywhere, so there's inspiration everywhere you go. This has been one of the most valuable lessons I've learned in my life so far. For the longest time, I felt a sense of dread and confinement being in places that weren't New York City or London, as if those spaces had some monopoly on inspiration. Now I realize that you can be inspired wherever you go.
Dr. Riston summarizes this masterfully. Right, so absolutely. It just takes awakeness to what's out there. Oh, wait, there, there it is. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah. That's right. Father Nielsen tells this wonderful story about how da Vinci had an insatiable sense of curiosity, so much so that he followed people around the, in the streets when they intrigued him, and how that might get him in some trouble in today's society. I tell my students uh, this apocryphal story about Leonardo da Vinci, who had this alleged reputation for following people through the streets of Florence here, because he, uh, <laughs> the, the way the light might have fallen on you know, the cheek, or something like yeah. this, or this this particular um, velvet that, that you know the person might be wearing, or, or the cut of the garment, and he couldn't stop thinking. And today we would call that a stalker, right? So he's <laughs> creeping on me. But but here he, he recognized this, this this bit of beauty, and it was irresistible. It would have been impossible to to not follow. A modern-day example of this is Brandon Stanton, the creator of Humans of New York. He finds inspiration everywhere. Finding inspiration, beauty, you know, surprise, delight, wonder, and all on the streets, right? Brandon is such an inspiration in my life, and especially with the conversationalist, because his work just declares that there is validity in every human experience. There is inspiration in the mundane, there's inspiration in places where you would not expect it, and there's dignity there too. And I think there's something really humanizing about that in times where people are often dehumanized in various ways or reduced to their political beliefs or their appearance or all these sorts of things. In times where divisions are pretty deep and tensions are high, I wondered how Father Nielsen and Dr. Risden think the humanities and the arts can contribute to mending these divisions and opening people's perspectives. Father Nielsen explains how art can mend these divisions by making up for what we cannot express. We, we, we have art, we, we have painting um, to, to make up for words, for what words can't provide. Because if we could say it all, there'd be no reason to paint it. That's, that's what this is, right? And, and, and so um, it exists as its own, but it also exists in tandem uh, with, with the word, right? And, and so I would say that's a very legitimate and necessary uh, form of communication, articulation of truth, uh, of desire, uh, of hope, of longing, that sort of business. And we certainly don't want to dismiss that, that voice, uh, that, that communication from occurring. And so we need to rely on that and cultivate that to work in tandem with all the other ways that we communicate. Dr. Riston expands on all these ways that we communicate by affirming the ability of all disciplines to mend divisions if the participant finds a space of joyfulness. Disciplines are ways of knowing and ways of producing. And the reason we have any number of different disciplines, academic disciplines, comes from the fact that we have different ways of knowing and making. All of them have value, all of them have virtue. Right. Uh, if one does them with commitment and joyfulness, they're all wonderful. Um, and for, for me, in a sense, there's no distinction then, because all of them, the person devoted to any of them, can have that can use that. What we don't want to miss 
<clears throat> I think, is that joyfulness. And if you can find a way to get that, to reach that point, to get yourself into that state of mind, you can find it in any discipline that you pursue. And it brings them joy, it brings them transportation from the simple state of quotidian living mm -hmm. into some higher order of feeling and understanding, at least for a little bit of time. And, and we believe that, that the arts provider provide really good means to do that, and that's why we value them so much. Mm -hmm. But I think all disciplines provide that in their way. Uh, we just hope, we aim to try to help students find their way to that experience. Father Nielsen is trying to help some incarcerated individuals find that sense of joyfulness through his classes at the Maximum Security Prison in Brown County. And he talks about how poetry has been such a powerful tool for helping these men. Hearing you speak at, um, on, on Thursdays, I, I teach at the Maximum Security Prison yeah. here, the Green Bay Correctional yeah, Institute. Yeah, it's a class on essential identity, it's through a restorative justice program. Mm -hmm. And uh, for three hours, it allows them to have an opinion because in a situation like that, uh, an opinion is something that is also incarcerated. Um, it doesn't matter what you think here, you've got, you've got to do this and so we can control the situation. But within this classroom, by showing them uh, images that I curated, you know, that address topical themes here, they're able to uh, create their own narratives and express opinions, you know, keeping the wheels turning, which, which is, is a good thing. But uh, this is all yeah. roundabout to get your point here. What they love more than anything is poetry. And I think how inspired they might be by someone like yourself coming in there uh, with the area of expertise that you have to encourage and help them recognize what it is that they long for because bar none, this is the art form that they say they rely most on and are most interested to hear. Dr. Risden contemplates what it is about poetry that can be so liberating for many people. It's actually really hard to say what you think or what you feel. Mm -hmm. That's not something that just comes out. Yeah. Because the thought is often a little bit vague, the feeling a little bit vague. Yeah. So to put it down and get it exactly the way you want, and then get it in uh, to a shape that someone else can think or feel too, mm -hmm. is hard. Mm -hmm. But you can only do that if first you get something out, something to work with. Um, yeah. So you've got to let. It's an ugly image, the disjecta membra of the soul come out, and it isn't quite that. But the ebullience, maybe? I would let it boil out first and then try to find a shape for it. If, if, if you know, go back into the Middle Ages and the whole notion of reading silently, no one had ever thought of it. Mm -hmm. Even in libraries, mm -hmm. people would go in and open a book and read aloud. Really? Yeah. 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 Augustine yeah. speaks of that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. because the, 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 right. the, the, the feel of the word mm -hmm. in your ear Feel yeah. of the word in your yeah. mouth yeah. as you speak it. It's like chewing on a sandwich. Ooh, yeah. You know, it's the, the words are they, they have to they have to come to, to full sensual embodiment, sensory embodiment. So now we are digging into what I think is the heaviest content of the entire conversation. I often look to my humanities professors to solve my existential crises, a job they did not sign up for nor ask for, but they seem like some of the most qualified people for talking about this stuff in many ways. 
I mean, the material of their disciplines deals with the very essence of what it means to be human. And there's a whole lot of worrying and angst that comes with that territory. I've been dealing with this a lot more lately in my transition to the working world. I wonder what impact I want to make, why do I matter, all of that jazz. So what is the solution? And do you ever stop experiencing those feelings? I wonder how you overcome that um, fight feelings of like apathy that you might have and and go out and work positively and work with energy. How, did you ever encounter those feelings or was that not something that you ever struggled with? About two hours ago. Right now? Not two hours ago because we had such a lovely class. Yeah. You're always only going to be one person. And, and any one person is just a little being in the great shape of things. But on the other hand, you are one. And you have your talents, and you have your, your being, and you have your life to live. And it matters just as much as everybody else's does. And it's the one you have. And so I think what, what you search for is, I would, I don't know, this is being too overbearing probably. If one seeks to have an impact, then you're insisting someone else respond to you in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Whereas instead, if you find that space of joyfulness and, yeah. and live in that, yeah. then um, you're much more likely to have an impact. But when you do, it will happen because people choose for it to happen for them too, oh, okay. rather than our, one's own efforts trying to force them into it. Mm -hmm. I've reminded myself this about 10 times a day, especially in regards to the conversationalist. If I make these videos or podcasts with the intention of just gaining a massive audience, that is expecting someone to respond in a certain way, and it's kind of forceful. Rather, if I work from a space of joyfulness and love of the material, my work is a success regardless, because it's putting this out in the world, and it's something that I enjoy doing and find fulfilling. I just finished an amazing book. The title's a bit profane. It's uh, called The Subtle Art of Not Giving Enough. And he said the exact same thing. You pick and you choose what you want to give an F about. And if you want to care about the material and not so much the response, you'll probably be more successful in the long term. You're giving an F about the correct things. Father Nielsen comments on how knowing that he has positively affected a student is incredibly powerful for him and fights these feelings of of smallness or worries about the impact that one is making. Something that sustains me uh, is every now and then I'll receive out of the blue a postcard from a museum or a gallery of a former student and that will sustain me for the entire semester is that I remember seeing this or you mentioned this and I've, and that's a little trophy for me. That, those are something that I keep. I mean, I'm, I'm not a collector in a certain sense of too many things. And, and I'm not looking, you know, I'm not asking them to, to feed these things to me. But when that occurs, that, I can't tell you, that's euphoric. That, that is, that's an affirmation that I am where I ought to be uh, if, if there's such a way of thinking that way. And it really, I mean that when I can say it, it will completely sustain me. That, that one little postcard. Send Father Nielsen your postcards, everybody. 
but in all seriousness, this was a reminder to me of how important it is to tell people in your life who have inspired you that they've done this for you. I mean, there are so many people who have been sources of inspiration in my life who probably don't even know it. And that inspires other people to let them know that they've made a positive impact in your own life. It's kind of like a continuous cycle of inspiration and energy. So yeah, pass it along. Keeping things rolling with the difficult questions, the next thing I ask them is how they have conversations with individuals they disagree with. This is a really interesting discussion to have about academics because I think there's this widespread perception that they're elitist or, you know, overwhelmingly liberal, which may be true, but there's also this perception that that bleeds into teaching in a lot of ways. I haven't experienced that in my classes, um, but I know that some students say they have, so I wanted to ask Father Nielsen and Dr. Risden how they open up productive dialogues with individuals that they do not share beliefs with. I'm always on the question of common denominator. I'm always thinking, you know, about archetypal images. I mean, what, what, what was the essence of the form? That, that's what it is this here. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're trying to, to, to look underneath or to, you know, peel back the layers, that, that, that sort of thing, particularly with, with signs and symbols in the visual arts. Uh, because we do want to, to, I think, find those common denominators uh, when, in fact, something may look so you know, species-specific you know, to, to a time or, or, or to a community of people that it would, it would not be accessible by anyone else. And, and I want to suggest that we have more in common than we might think. And so I try to be very careful in curating images here that allow that to be, um, uh, to be realized, you know, on, on you know, varying levels uh, of recognition in the hopes that that might uh, stimulate that, that thought in other circumstances and where they might take that principle, that idea, and apply it. You just asked, to me, that's a wonderful answer. Um, one of the hardest questions I think you could ask. Yeah. Way to go, Nora. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, makes it, that makes it, though, a really important one to ask. And I, I don't have really good strategies for that. I very much like Father Jim's idea of sharing stories, sharing images about finding common ground, uh, but that takes willingness from both sides yeah. to do that. You have to be able to engage to begin with. So I, I'm embarrassed to say, as far as I know, I only really have two techniques for this. And one, one is just um, asking questions instead of talking to myself. You know, just uh, if, I, if there's someone with whom I really can't find any, you know, you sit down next to somebody on the airplane and you realize that person's views on things are just antithetical. But that person's going to talk to you for the next hour and a half, regardless, <laughs> that regardless in. <laughs> of what you do. Yeah, yeah. So, so my way to make that person feel a little bit more at peace or a little bit more mm -hmm. comfortable is, so, um, uh, so, uh, you know, I say you were showing me that picture of your kids. Tell me about your, your kids. You know, what are they? What are they doing now? You know, why? Why did you name that one Eleanor? Try to get them on some level of comfort and hope that it it helps them break. A boundary instead of make a boundary. 
Dr. Riston's strategy that he just detailed here is very similar to that of Dr. Harry Brode, uh, who was a masculinity studies professor and uh, one of the most noted scholars in that field. And he had some time where he taught at St. Norbert College, and he just recently passed away. Um, but Dr. Harry Brode talked about listening people into change. It's sort of what Dr. Riston was saying at the beginning of this podcast. If you seek to make an impact, that's asking a lot from the other side and forcing them to have a response. Rather, if you listen to them and seek to understand, you can really make some positive change and understand where that other side is coming from in the hopes of creating a connection instead of building a barrier. Now, his second solution is a little different from his first, and that is simply to to get away. When you know that you're making the situation worse, perhaps the best solution is to walk away. And this is difficult for me to hear in some ways because I think, well, how is that ever going to make anything better? But I understand where he's coming from in saying that there is a point where it's just going to be futile. The conversation is just going to be cyclical and more vitriolic than helpful. Um, and, but beyond that, my way is to shut up and go away as soon as I can. Because I do find there are, there are times when I'm not going to be able to do any good. So rather than do no good, I just try to do no harm and be quiet mm-hmm. okay. get out of the way. That's, and that's, I know that seems like giving up, but to me it isn't really giving up. It's just knowing that all I can do in the present is make the situation worse. And as they do so well, both Dr. Risden and Father Nielsen bring up examples of theorists or leaders in their fields who talk about techniques for finding similarities, even when the differences seem overwhelming. Do you know David Tracy? He's a theorist at the University of Chicago. He's also a Catholic priest. And so a Catholic priest at the University of Chicago in itself is... <laughs> That's, kind of, yeah. well. That's an interesting combination, yeah. I, he wrote about the analogous imagination, and that changed my entire pedagogy. You know, this whole thing, you know, uh, knowing something by seeking similarities rather than its differences. I mean, how do we know something? Oftentimes we want to uh, compartmentalize it and then say it's not this, it's not this, and, this. and he's saying it's this, and it's this, and it's this. And he goes, this is a strategy for discerning, you know, um, great truths everywhere. The analogous imagination. T.S. So, Eliot calls yeah. it objective correlative. There, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the same notion exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that you know, some people say, why write a poem? Just say it. Just say whatever you have. Well, you can't just say it. There is no way just to say it. You have to get at it through uh, through an image that has emotional content as well as intellectual content. Whether it's through the objective correlative, the analogous imagination, through finding joy in whatever discipline you study or work in, through approaching conversations with the desire to listen rather than speak over someone else, I hope you have found ways to create spaces to have productive discourse in your life. Ultimately, I think those spaces are where we realize the validity and integrity in human experience in general and how that manifests in all these different forms and that's something i'm so grateful to father nielsen and dr riston for illuminating for me even in places where we can find very few similarities or things just seem offensive to us there is beauty and inspiration there 
As Dr. Riston says, it just takes awakeness to what's out there. And my voice is getting hoarse, so I think it's time to wrap this one up for today. This podcast was written, recorded, and edited by me, Nora Eckert. All the music attributions are in the description of this podcast. The songs are from Free Music Archive under the Share Alike license. If you have someone you think I should interview for The Conversationalist, or if you're interested in talking about sponsoring The Conversationalist, feel free to send me an email at theconversationalistne at gmail.com. More information is found in the description of this podcast, along with links to social media and my website. And as of now, we are just about nine days away from the one-year anniversary of The Conversationalist, so lots of celebration to come your way soon. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast today. Subscribe if you enjoyed, and I'll speak to you soon. 